As she laid in her makeshift bed, positioned in the great room of the mansion near downtown St. Louis, Missouri, Betsy tried to will herself to sleep. She was aware of her colleague, uncomfortably positioned on a couch nearby, and she tried not to focus too much on the settling sounds of the old structure. But then there were the footsteps. Even though she knew it was just the two of them in the building, she heard someone approaching. Betsy was well aware of the building's haunted past. In fact, she had studied it thoroughly and had had her fair share of encounters with spirits within the limp mansion. But even sensitives can take only so much. When the footfalls were circling where she tried to sleep, Betsy finally spoke out, telling the entity that she didn't know who it was, nor did she care. She just wanted to sleep. It was only then that the footsteps fell silent. I'm Steve Blanchard. Welcome to Phantom History. One of the most influential and most tragic families in St. Louis history are the Limps. The descendants of Johann Adam Limp were practically royalty in the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. But, like with many royal families, their wealth and fame were counterbalanced by family secrets, intriguing personalities, and death. A lot of death. The story of the Limps begins promising, with an immigrant achieving the American dream and making an historic impact on the city of St. Louis, Missouri that started in the 1930s and continues today. Betsy Burnett Bollinger, the Limp Mansion's historian and paranormal investigator, explains the family's optimistic beginnings. Well, um, it actually started with uh, a man by the name of Johann Adam Limp. Now, he liked to be called Adam, so that's what we'll call him. And Adam was a German immigrant. He uh, came here into the United States in the 1830s. He finally ended up in St. Louis about 1838. Now, he was already a very wealthy man. He also had lots of skills, and one of the skills that he had mastered in Germany was making beer. He was a brewmeister. They call it there a master brewer. So that's what he really wanted to do, but he had to earn his way. He had to make his name known and so forth and so forth. There's Adam in St. Louis. He opens up a, a small business operation, a, a mercantile, they used to call it a grocery business, which uh, eventually he adds on a room to start serving beer, and he serves the community a beer called German Lager Beer. No one had ever tasted that before. It was new, and uh, people loved it. They just loved it. So he became very popular, got his name out there, and he closed the business, opened up a brewery. Now, the brewery was called the Western Brewing Company. That Now, that he came about 1838. And so the Western Brewing Company was going very strong by the 1850s. And uh, that's how the Lemp Brewery, although it was called the Western Brewery, got its its hold on St. Louis back, as far back as that. In 1862, Adam Lemp died of natural causes and the family business, the brewery, went to his son, William Jacob Lemp. The younger Lemp changed the name of the brewery to the William J. Lemp Brewing Company and relocated it to South St. Louis's Fenton Park neighborhood. William J. Limp was well-liked in the community and was viewed as a philanthropic man and a business genius. While he ran his household and business with an iron fist, he was personable and well-liked, especially among his employees, at least until his personality started to shift. 
He treated his workers so well. They were German immigrants similar to him. And so they um, they didn't understand some of the the way that the United States worked. For instance, the banking system. So he paid them in cash. And he knew every one of their names. He knew their family history. He could ask them questions about their families. And they, they adored him. And that's when they knew something was wrong after he went through this deep depression and he withdrew from them and he didn't know them anymore and he was uh, very withdrawn and uh, distracted they said William took his life on February 13 1904 that was at the Lent Mansion the first suicide in the Lent Mansion it was upstairs on the second floor in his bedroom and um, no one thought um, that he was contemplating suicide because he had been so withdrawn and he spent a lot of his time in his room or reading in the library or some, you know, he just, uh, he didn't venture out very, very much and he didn't communicate with people. So on the morning when he told his wife he wasn't feeling well and going back to lay down, she really didn't think anything of it and went ahead and left the house to do the daily shopping that she had to do. He went back upstairs and he took his life. He shot himself in the head, um, and but he didn't die right away. In fact, he lingered for a little bit. He died before they, le they left the house, before they took him away from the house, I should say. But um, he, he was still alive when they found him. The servants heard the noise, and they were the only ones in the house besides him. And then they called his sons who broke down the door and discovered their father's body. The wife came home. Julia came home. She cradled him in her arms, and he died. It kind of set uh, um, a precedent, I guess you might call it, for the rest of the family. William's depression was fueled by the death of his son, Frederick, who died in his late 20s. Frederick is believed to have had tuberculosis and died of heart failure in December of 1901. Frederick, the fourth son, was William's favorite and the one he had hoped would take over the family business. Just three years later, in January of 1904, William's best friend, Frederick Pabst, died, which likely led to William's suicide. That suicide in February of 1904 was the first of three to occur in the house and the first of four suicides total for the family. The spirits of those tragic deaths are still in the mansion, according to Betsy. Some people just probably could say they just sit there and all these images and things float to them and they see them and everything, which could be. But I, I listen and I'm quiet and I can sit in a room for, I used to more than I do now. And uh, so I listen to what, what's being said to me. So I've gotten some communications through that, some communications through my own questions. Um, you know, we have uh, the five senses that we all know and love, like hearing and seeing and tasting. And I always forget one, but uh, the sixth sense comes into play with that too. And we all have that as well. And that's our ability to communicate or to um, be involved with um, um, things that are around us, the paranormal, the other than normal. And that that would bring in being to, able to communicate with, with other beings. Now, I, I also consider myself a spiritualist, which is someone who does communicate with the dead. Betsy says that one of the spirits who communicates with her directly is Billy Lemp, who took over the family business after the suicide of his father in 1904 and ran it until he sold the complex in 1920. 
He had difficulty adjusting to the new way of doing business and was consistently quoted as saying, if it was good enough for my father, it's good enough for me. In hindsight, it's not surprising that he too ended his life by suicide in the mansion in 1922. He was a very complicated man. He was um, he was a very brutal man at times. Uh, so it's been reported from uh, some of the things that he was involved in, from animal fights in the prairie to other things. Um, he would carry a gun with him all the time. But he also would refer back constantly, if it's good enough for my father, it's good enough for me. So that could have meant so many different things from carrying that gun laying the gun on the dinner table uh, so now he did it so the servants had moved quicker when William senior did it it was so he could control the conversation and then also to the suicide if it's good enough for my father it's good enough for me his own physical ailments pressure from the business and the death of his sister Elsa who killed herself shortly after remarrying her husband in 1920 likely weighed heavily on Billy he was in the first floor office of the mansion when he fired that fatal self-inflicted gunshot. It's hard to believe, but even after two suicides in the mansion and one suspected suicide by a sister at her own estate, there was even more tragedy awaiting the Limp family. Charles Limp was the last member of the family to call the mansion his home. Now Charles, Charles was a middle brother and he was very attached to so many things. <laughs> he was a very quiet man. He was a very introverted man. Um, he, some say he was a sourpuss, his brothers used to call him that, but he just was very analytical. He liked math and you ended up in the banking business, but he was still living in the house by, at 1910. And Billy, his older brother wanted to change the mansion into the offices. So he forcefully, I guess, encouraged his brother to find his own way. And so he created this estate for himself. And But he had been withdrawing even more. He had become what we call today a germaphobe. He didn't like people around him. And so he decided to travel and he was becoming ill on his travels. And he was sending all the things that he purchased. Now he was a collector. And so he purchased all kinds of riches all over the world and had them sent back to St. Louis, but never to his estate. He always had them sent back to the Lemp Mansion. So when he became too ill to travel, he came back there too and opened up the house again and began to live there. And he lived there from the 1930s until his death in 1949. Uh, he lived there only with two servants and his dog. And his dog's name was Serva. Now that's a communication too that I received of her name. And uh, so he became, he was always attached. He, he, he chose the bedroom upstairs because it had been his grandparents' room. Well then, even though there was an elevator there, the servants were having a hard time taking care of him. So they moved him downstairs and they gutted this little room that had been a small, cozy little library into a bedroom for him. And so on uh, May 10th, 1949, they found him dead in that room. He had shot himself and he had also shot his dog to take her with him. He's the one who left the suicide note, the only one. One family, four suicides. Three of them within the walls of the Lent Mansion. With so much tragedy, it's not surprising that spirits linger in the historic location. And there are more than just the spirits of those who killed themselves. 
After Charlie Lemp died, the home eventually turned into a boarding house where an untold number of souls crossed its threshold, and it's likely that there are also a number of deaths that went unrecorded in the mansion. Betsy has encountered a number of spirits and believes that at least most of them are still trying to fulfill a purpose. Julia, who died of cancer, is a spirit there. Now she's there because she wanders and she's looking for one of her sons. Now this is where uh, a little bit of leap of faith comes in because uh, some people don't believe this, this child ever existed. Now, I was given his name as Zeke from Billy. Uh, but it could be a pet name or a nickname, but other people call him some pretty ugly things. He was a deformed, um, disabled child, and he was very challenged in so many ways. Um, but he was well-loved by his family. But, you know, there is not a lot of uh, proof of that. There's no birth certificate. There is an unmarked grave in their mausoleum. And apparently, uh, from my communication again, he died of a fall. Now, a fall could have been something from down a ladder, down a flight of steps, something like that. He suffered um, from a lot of deformities, and some people have likened it to what the elephant man would have been, would have looked like. This disease, I believe they call it, with the growths and the enlarged head and, and so forth. So, uh, and Zeke is a spirit there. So we've got five Lemp family members. We've got um, a servant that I have first encountered when I first started working there. Very dormant, no, not much about her. Her name is Sarah. There's a little girl spirit that I've encountered numerous times, and other people have too. And then there's this man who I'm not sure where he fits in. Now, he was identified by me because I ran into him and he, he kind of surrounded me with a really stinky smell someone suggested I call him Oscar I went I love that nice old-fashioned name but then he said this was a guy on tour he said I know you know who Oscar is he lives in a garbage can smells real bad and he's real nasty because this Oscar guy didn't like people around him like leave me alone you know if it's my house leave me alone so there's uh, there's nine according to me while Betsy admits that her encounters with the entities residing within the Lent mansion can be unsettling she says that she has rarely felt threatened. There was one night in particular, however, that stands out in her memory as her most terrifying experience. The first time I spent the night there, I was, I was downstairs on the first floor sleeping on a, like a cot, more or less, and it was very late and I was, I was really scared. First time I had spent the night there, I was in the middle of the hallway, you know, and I did have an assistant with me and he was sleeping on the couch fairly close to me and I felt someone walking around the bed you know and pounding footsteps boom 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 and stopping and whoa leaning over me and making this god-awful piercing noise I just kept repeating to myself I or to him I guess I'm too scared you gotta go away I'm too scared you gotta go away so there have been many times that I've been uh, not only startled but downright really scared Spiritual activity is not uncommon in the Limp Mansion, which today serves as a restaurant and inn. Guests will often share their experiences with Betsy, as well as photos of unexplainable images caught on cell phones and digital cameras. One such photo in particular stands out to Betsy, who has an explanation for the odd photo. 
Well, when people bring me pictures, I just absolutely love it. There was not too long ago, a woman shared a picture and she was on the second floor in one of the bathrooms, just looking around. She didn't even have her camera. She had a phone camera going and uh, she, her phone, I, I think the flash might've gone off or something. So she walked out in the hallway to see what she had. And she just saw the tub and, you know, the shower. And then she looked above where it was. And there's a figure of, it looks like Charles Lemp to me, looking in the window. Now, the window's on the second floor, mind you, so it wasn't a person. Even in a mansion the size of the Lemp Mansion, with more than 30 rooms, the nine spirits Betsy says still reside there may seem like a large number. But with so much history and tragedy in one building... These lingering spirits are to be expected, Betsy says. Spirits usually remain in an earthbound state because of the manner of their death. So there you have four suicides. You have maybe other deaths that were sudden. Service death, obviously, the dog was shot, you know, so she remained there. You know, the spirit doesn't cross. It never, it doesn't get to that point where it's going to the next level or crossing through the light or whatever you want to call it so it stays in that earthbound state now it could be their their choice as well that they feel they've got something unfinished or they've got some amends to make or maybe someone on the other side makes them so totally anxious or angry or fearful that they don't cross Mm -hmm. so there's all those aspects why um, a spirit stays in an earthbound state you know most spirits do cross over and they go on to either their eternal bliss, and sometimes they can come back to us, too, as, as little visits. We call them spirit guides. But one spirit guide is noticeably missing. William J. Limp Sr., the man who renamed the brewery after the family and who was the first to kill himself in the historic mansion back in 1904, has not yet been seen. His death was the first tragic one on the property, so why would he still not be present in the home? Betsy has a theory. You know, I've been doing this for a long time and I have never encountered his spirit. I've encountered his story, but never his spirit. And I have a feeling, and this is my theory, that at the moment of his passing, that his son Frederick, who had been the son that died, um, that he was there and helped him in that transition. So he didn't linger as an earthbound spirit. The Limp family is a staple of St. Louis history and a part of the beer brewing culture of the Gateway City. While the brewery named after the family is no longer operational, the complex still stands near the mansion. The Pointer family, who now own and run the Limp Mansion Restaurant and Inn, actively embrace and respect the legends of the family and those who passed through its doorways so many years ago. And that attitude has helped the family and Betsy fulfill a mission on behalf of the Limps. I do feel that I have a responsibility maybe or a mission or that they're trying to let me know because I'm very respectful of them. I am. I give the story as I know it. It is respect for their home. It is their home. I think Billy Lemp and I have that affinity because I looked beyond the fact that he was kind of a brutal man and looked for the why was he a brutal man? What happened to him? And I think that he appreciated that. But with Charles particularly, that is his home. He wants his home to be respected. And that's what makes them angry is disrespect of their family, of their 
their story. And um, if I have conveyed anything, anything, uh, since the time I've been there, is the fact that people are more respectful when they're around me. So that that would be what I think that they're trying, that they're using me through, is to get their story there and to let people know that they are still there. Phantom History is written, edited, and produced by me, Steve Blanchard. Thank you to Betsy Burnett Belanger for sharing the history of the Lent Mansion and her paranormal expertise and encounters. Betsy gives historic and paranormal tours of the Lent Mansion, which can be booked at limpmansion.com. Music for this episode is courtesy of Shane Ivers, Chad Crouch, and Raphael Crew. For photos of the Limp Mansion, historic newspaper clips, and more on this interview with Betsy, visit phantomhistory.com or follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. If you enjoy Phantom History, please consider giving it a five-star review on whatever platform you use to enjoy podcasts, and share the link with a friend. And, as always, thank you for listening.